there and you're very welcome to the programme. Well, coming up in the next hour, read by millions in the US every week, I'll be chatting with Irish-American New York Times columnist and Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Maureen Dowd. Also this morning, remembering one of our greatest musicians and composers. Helen Phelan, wife of the late Miolo Sulawon, joins me ahead of two special tribute concerts in his memory and saving the life of a New Zealand rugby official. After yesterday's big win, I'll be chatting with the Irish fan who came to the rescue of the opposition with CPR. As always, we'd love to hear your thoughts on anything featured in the programme. You can text us to 51551. You can email Miriam at rte.ie or you can tweet at Miriam O'Cal. Well, my first guest this morning is one of the best known newspaper columnists in America, with her column in the New York Times read by millions every week. Born to an Irish father and mother, she began her career in journalism in 1974. And next Friday, the Pulitzer Prize winning journalist will be at the Galway International Arts Festival in conversation with Fintan O'Toole. Maureen Dagg, good morning to you. Good morning, Miriam. It's nice to talk to you again. Lovely to chat to you, Maureen. Listen, your full name, I know, is Maureen Bridget Dowd, a more Irish name you couldn't really come by. Tell me (laughs) a little of your own background, will you? You know, growing up in Washington, I think you were the youngest of five. And um, Tell me about your childhood. Well, my dad was born in Ballybon and my mom's parents were from Ballinrobe. And I had an idyllic childhood. I was the youngest of five, so I was doted on by everyone. (laughs) My sister did my hair, you know, and put flowers in it. And, you know, it was fantastic. I grew up in Washington, and my dad was a D.C. police detective who was in charge of Senate security for 20 years. So, you know, that's why the January 6th, coup attempt was so hard because when I grew up, we were taught that our business was keeping the capital safe. That was our family business because that's what my dad did. So, you know, to see policemen attacked and the capital attacked that way was very painful for us. I can imagine. Why did your mom and dad leave Ireland? Did they talk about it much when you were young? Was Ireland very present in your childhood? Well, my mom's parents were from Ireland. She herself was born in Wilmington. But my dad, you know, family legend has it that he, you know, had a ticket for the Titanic. I know a lot of people say that when he was 16. And his mom cried so much he sold it. I think he just wanted a greater opportunity. You know, he was from a very large family that had two mothers, one, you know, one mother, and then he was from the second wife, and it was a family of 16. So, you know, he was just looking for the American dream, yeah. And how did he meet your mom, do you know? You know, through the Irish community in Washington. Uh, She was younger. She was uh, about 18 years younger, and he was friends with her aunt in the Irish community, and they would go to dances, and they were both fantastic dancers, and they danced the hornpipe, and yeah, they met through the Irish community, and um, uh, she had won a contest in D.C. for, like, Miss Popularity. She was, unlike me, she was an extrovert, an extremely 
charming and outgoing. And he, you know, he was sort of a very charismatic, Gabriel Byrne-looking type of dark, mm-hmm. dark Irish with the blue eyes that looked like they had absorbed the Atlantic Ocean. And, uh, yeah, they were a fantastic-looking couple. She looked like Myrna Loy. So they were happy their whole lives. And he was Mike, she was Peggy. And I know you said that while you were the one at the newspaper, your mom, Peggy, she was the real news junkie. Yes, she applied for a job at the Washington Post when she was 18 in 1926. And an editor there told her that the characters she'd meet as a reporter were way too shady for a nice young lady. I mean, that was way before they were going to let women in the newsroom. But she always found a way to write. You know, she just would, she worked for the the Hibernian Digest, and she was the national historian of the ancient order of Hibernians. My dad was the president. And she just wrote, She even if it was just letters to me giving me instructions about, <laughs> you know, <laughs> she, one time in college, like, nobody invited me. In those days, women were waiting to be invited to a Valentine's dance, and she wrote me a letter. She sent me a check for $15, and she said, buy some red lipstick, because when you're blue, you should always wear red. Oh, I love your mother. Yeah, she was so sweet. You know, it's so funny, because their biggest marital fight was uh, when they went to Ireland, and she wanted to go right away to the grave of Michael Collins. And my dad was a Clare man, so he wanted to go to the grave of De Valera. (laughs) That was a major battle. Whenever I was, you know, I'm incredibly shy. And uh, whenever I was being shy about something, she would just say, remember, you've got the rocks of Clare in your head. (laughs) She was lovely. If If I had to tell you one story about my mother, you know, when she was 63, she put on her Irish tweed cape and went down to Kennedy Center to picket the British ambassador, you know, about illegally imprisoning, you know, Irish prisoners. (laughs) It was just amazing that she would do that. And she was very proud of herself because they had to bring the British ambassador through the basement door of the Kennedy Center. So was she really proud of you? Um, Yes, she was. She was very proud of me, but mostly my family was just shocked that I got into a profession that, you know, as a columnist, is very, you know, it's like the godfather. It's sort of you go after one of theirs, they go after two of yours. You know, it's a very out there kind of fractious sort of profession. And uh, I was so shy, you know, I barely talked growing up. So they just couldn't believe. My father loved newspapers. He died when I was 19. So he didn't see me become a newspaper woman, but he would have absolutely loved that. I would never have thought you're shy, but I have never met you in person, Maureen. But just reading your amazing comms, I mean, how did you then go from being this shy young woman to becoming one of the most syndicated and well-known columnists in the world? Well, you know, Beyonce always says she's very shy and she has to have kind of a stage personality, Mm -hmm. a different personality. She calls the different personality Sasha Fierce. And she just becomes a different person when she's on stage. And it's kind of like that. You know, you have to 
just have a much more bold personality in writing than in person. And I don't read Twitter, (laughs) so that helps. I mean, if I read Twitter, I'd just crawl under the bed and... (laughs) You know, with a bottle of Chardonnay and never come back. But listen, what first yeah. prompted you to go towards a career in journalism? I mean, what can you remember what age you might have been when you thought, this is what I want to do? Yeah, I kind of backed into it. I was uh, working at, at the Washington Hilton Swim and Tennis Club after I graduated from college and wearing a tennis dress to work every day, and my family had an intervention. And they're like, you're one of the first people in this family who went to college, and you you can do more with it than sell tennis balls. So my brother had a friend who was the sports editor of the Washington Star, which uh, no longer exists, but was a fantastic evening newspaper, really old school and fun. And, uh, you know, he got me a job there as a typist. And I slowly, 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 like, worked my way up. And, you know, it didn't occur to me for a couple years that I could actually be a reporter. I mean, I didn't have an Ivy League education, and I... I was super shy. I never wanted to ask people questions. And that kind of continued when I covered George Bush Sr. You know, I would never ask questions as a White House reporter. And my my editors would tell me to ask a question at a nighttime press conference, and then I'd lose my nerve. And finally, the president said, I'm going to ask you a question. <laughs> but I somehow managed to work around that problem. How did you work around that problem? I think because once you have the job, I I remember once I I went out on one of my first stories, and it was a father who had uh, had a teenager who was in an accident on prom night. And I just sat in the car and put my head on the steering wheel, and I just didn't think I could go talk to him. It was too sad. I didn't. You know, and then as I sat there, I thought, well, this is the job you have. They're paying you for it. You've got to learn how to do it or get another job. So finally, I went in and talked to him, and he wanted to talk about it. You know, it was cathartic for him. So you've kind of got to take yourself and how you would react in that situation. Like, I might not talk in that situation, but someone else might. So you have to take yourself out of it. Um, When you were appointed, Maureen, I think, as the Times White House correspondent, you were only the second female appointed to that role. What was that like for you? I know. That's amazing to think about, isn't it? I I kind of pioneered this style of political writing where it was at the intersection of politics and culture. So that in order to, you know, if you let politicians go on without without any framework, they'll just give you their speech chunks. So I wanted to get them a little off subject to see, you know, are they charming? Are they well-rounded? And so I would ask them, I was one of the first or the first to ask them, like, what movies do you like? What do you watch on TV? What do you like opera? Do you like ballet? You know, this mm-hmm. kind of thing, just to sort of get a more well-rounded view of them. And they would always be sort of shocked. And I remember Bush Sr. 
said to me, don't put me on the couch. You know, <laughs> so I was a shrink. And Bush Jr. said, I asked him what cultural events he liked, and he goes, baseball. <laughs> so it was kind of a way to get to know them better. So that's, I pioneered that, and that was kind of what I did. I did, I focused more on the person of the president rather than the daily policies they were putting out, because all the most traumatic things that have happened in American history, you know, Vietnam, Watergate, mm. had a lot to do with the president's insecurities or gremlins. You know, it wasn't the policies that they talked about during the campaign. It's like we get dragged into these national traumas because of who these people are. So I was focusing on that, like who is this president who has life and death control over us? But that was so interesting because in a way, as you say, you found out more about what the character of the person was. Do you think that's because you were female you did that? Well, definitely I look at the world through a woman's eyes and it is partly that, but it's also partly uh, I'm in love with Shakespeare. (laughs) When I was 13, my brother took me to Hamlet and I immediately fell in love with Hamlet. And I can tell you that it's not the right guy to fall in love with. He's terminally ambivalent. But I tried to view the White House through the lens of a Shakespearean play, a court. And when you look at it that way, you're looking at what is the fatal flaw or the characteristics. Why does Macbeth kill Duncan? Why, you know, why does Henry IV kind of get rid of Falstaff and grow up and become a good leader? Like in Shakespeare, you learn either why people overcome youthful indiscretions and become good leaders or why they implode. So all the template for human behavior is in Shakespeare. And you see all human behavior in White Houses, too, because, you know, the the ironic thing about presidents is at the very moment they're elected and they should feel very ratified and confident, you know, the public has just put them in the White House. That is when the gremlins come out. That's when the insecurities begin to eat away at them. You see it with Trump and with W, with the Iraq War. I mean, you know, they get in there and they should feel good, like they were just elected. But instead, it's like, wait a minute, you know, <laughs> what am I doing here? And how would you analyze Boris Johnson? Oh, wow. Well, I'm fascinated with him because, you know, he, but he has written a book on Shakespeare. So I really wanted to interview him. But, um, yeah, he's been a little bit busy imploding. (laughs) You know, obviously he's brainier than Trump, but he has some of the same issues of careening around. And Mm. what's interesting, you know, with Boris Johnson is he seems like such a smart guy to do such stupid things like the parties during COVID. And Mm. I don't know, you know, but but I like that's what I like. I like larger than life characters like in Shakespeare. And certainly Boris Johnson is a larger than life character who, you know, had fatal flaws. He brought about his own downfall. Would you still like to interview him? Yes. I'm going to try when I come to Ireland, but I doubt (laughs) I'll succeed. (laughs) Never know. You never know. Always worth the try. Yeah, I am. Yeah.
Every, you're absolutely right. It is worth a try. When you initially started writing your column at the New York Times, were you ever given a brief on the areas you were to cover? Was it to be politics, women's issues, or, or were you given a free reign to do whatever you want? When I got the column, I talked it over with the editorial page editor, and we thought it would be fun to do partly Washington politics, partly New York and partly Hollywood. And I did do that to a certain extent, but right when I got the column, there were all these incredible stories. I mean, we've had this cascade of impeachments and wars ever since. <laughs> so I, I kind of, you know, it's hard to get time to do anything but Washington because the politicians here are imploding faster than I can cover it. <laughs> Back in 2005, when you published your great book, Are Men Necessary? You said then if there was one thing men feared, it's a woman who uses her critical faculties. Do you still think that's true today or not? You know, when I wrote that book, I assumed that by now the battle of the sexes would be over, you know, things would have calmed down. But I, I think that relations between the sexes are just as complex and fraught as ever. You know, the fallout of Me Too, you know, in many ways, it's just hard for one side to understand the other. Your brother, Kevin, was that the brother you've been speaking about a few times with me today? Well, I had an older brother, too. I've lost two of my brothers. That's the problem with being the youngest. And I had an older brother, Michael, who helped raise me that I might have talked about. But Kevin is the one closest in age to me. And he is the one I let write the column once a year because I really think New York Times readers needed to hear from red state America. They just can't. (laughs) buried their heads in the sand about what the other side thinks. It's so interesting, though. You grew up in the same household, same parents. And politically, Kevin, he's very different to you, isn't he? How did that happen? Well, I often use this as an example. My dad stayed up all night the night Harry Truman was elected because he was so excited. My brother stayed up all night the night Donald Trump was elected because he was so excited. So unless the Democrats can figure out how they lost the working class like that, you know, and partly they lost it because some of some top Democrats sort of radiate a kind of disdain. They are very elitist. So I think, you know, they're going to have to fix that if they want to uh, get back control after this uh, midterms, which is shaping up to be a red wave. You know, my dad was a Democrat. He knew Harry Truman and loved him when Harry Truman, you know, because he worked at the Capitol. So when Harry Truman, after he was elected, my dad said, hi, Mr. President. And Harry Truman said, just call me Harry, Mike. And he would judge politicians not so much on their ideology, but just on you know, their behavior and, and character. And I think I inherited some of that from my dad. So in a way, yes, my brothers and my sister are very conservative. And uh, I'm not that conservative. But in another way, it was always a mix, given the fact that my parents started as Democrats. The problem was then my mom fell totally in love with Ronald Reagan. So <laughs> the whole family became conservative because she had the hots for Reagan. 
That's so funny. Did she love him? Oh, my gosh. She said, you know, when she saw Ronald Reagan in a tuxedo, she could just be in heaven. (laughs) (laughs) But the nice thing is, you understand so well where your brother Kevin is coming from. Like, you're not at all hostile. Even though you think completely differently, you understand in a way why he thinks the way he does. Well, you know, you mentioned I was I was talking about Michael, my oldest brother. So when I covered W, George W. Bush, the second Bush administration, my family would get annoyed with me and they would tease me at Christmas. And I didn't realize until after Michael died that it had actually affected our relationship because I would put family first, obviously, over my job. But... You know, I sort of realized that their annoyance that I was writing negative things about the president because, obviously, I thought the Iraq war was a huge disaster. But he, you know, before he died, he kind of told my sister I was right about W. But I was very upset that it sort of caused a distance, and Mm -hmm. I vowed that would never happen again. So my siblings, my two siblings that are left are pro-life. And I really respect that. I understand that. We don't argue about that. And sometimes my sister tells me what's on Fox News, and I would disagree with it. But I don't, we never get in arguments about politics, because I don't want that to interfere with my love for them. That's so interesting. And I assume, therefore, you have not been discussing the Roe versus Wade decision very much with your brother and sister? No, because I understand how Mm. they feel. I get it. You know, lots of times when Trump was elected, many of our columnists sort of went down, drove down to Texas and red states, and they said, wrote about it. They said they were trying to understand what this strange other people who voted for Trump who they were and how they felt. And I don't need to do that. I just go home to my family. I understand. But my love of family has to take precedence over having some political argument. I do have friends who have stopped speaking to siblings over this, you know, and we just are very conscious of the fact that that's not going to happen to us. No, not so important. You've had a glorious career, have a glorious career. Do you still love being a journalist and a columnist? And do you think it still matters in the world we live in today? Yeah, you know, I was uh, telling you, so I pioneered this thing of the intersection of culture and politics. And then everyone began to do it. You know, the guys used to make fun of me for it and say it was trivial. But now all journalists do that. That's the first thing they do with a presidential aspirant. But now, you know, I'm getting my master's in English literature at Columbia University. Oh, and congratulations. So I switched. <laughs> Thank you. I've switched to the intersection of academia and politics. So now Now I like bring, you know, what I'm reading, the classics to bear on politics. So that's sort of infused my columns, I think, with a whole new outlook. Like when for the, and not only politics, culture, for the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial, Mm. you know, I happened to be taking a class on Paradise Lost and some Mm. people were saying, oh, 
if you watch the trial, you're complicit. You shouldn't be watching the trial. And I wrote a column saying, no, how, you know, of course we're going to be fascinated because it's our creation story. Two gorgeous people in love who are in Eden with all mm. these, Johnny Depp had all these amazing properties around the world. And then they self-destruct and get thrown out of Eden. I mean, that's, how we started in the Bible, <laughs> Paradise Lost. So, of course, we're going to be interested in that story. Are you looking forward to coming to Galway next week then? Oh, yes. I'm bringing my sister, my fox-watching sister. Hi, that's <laughs> and, great. Um, What's her name? Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, Peggy. Oh, oh great. After, After your mom. mom. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, yeah, we're really looking forward to it. I love uh, uh, Galway. I love Ireland. And also, I spent two years sitting by myself at my dining room table during COVID. So, you know, it's exciting to be back out in the world again. Well, Maureen, it's been a great pleasure chatting to you as ever. You're going to be at the Galway International Arts Festival in conversation with the great Fintan O'Toole at the NUIG press tent on July the 15th at 7pm. I'd say it'll be a great event. Thanks so much, Maureen. I hope you and your sister Peggy have a great trip home. Thank you. Thanks so much, Miriam. It's great to talk to you again. Mind yourself, Maureen. Take care.